In November of 2001, a 14-year-old girl was out on a shopping trip with her mom that would ultimately alter the course of her life forever. I'm Reagan Snyder, and this is the story of Elizabeth Smart. So most people know the story of Elizabeth Smart. So why am I covering the story? Because I'm, I, I feel like I'm one of many people who, who are inspired by it. Because you've got this 14-year-old girl who was thrust into a world that she could have never even imagined in her mind. She was so naive and so sheltered. And she got through these hellish nine months with faith and gratitude. And beyond that, she went on to live a normal life and just choose to be happy and choose to make the most of her life. So I wanted to talk about her story. So we're going to go back to the very early hours of June 5th, 2002. Mary Catherine, Elizabeth's sister, went into her parents' bedroom and walked over to her dad's side of the bed and was like, hey, Elizabeth is gone. And they're, you know, they're asleep. So they're like, what? What are you saying? What's going on? And so she goes over to her mom and she's like, Elizabeth is gone. And initially they thought, oh, you know, she's somewhere else in the house. Maybe she went downstairs to sleep on the couch like she did sometimes. And Mary Catherine was like, no, she, there was a guy in our room with a gun and he took Elizabeth. And so they jolt awake and they bolt through the house and they're looking for Elizabeth and they don't see her anywhere. And then it occurs to them that they had opened a window the night before. They left it cracked open just to kind of air out the house because I think uh, Lois, Elizabeth's mom, had, had burned a little bit of dinner or something. So they're airing the house out. So they look over at the window and the screen is slashed. And so they're like, oh my gosh, Elizabeth has been kidnapped. Call 911. So they call the police. The police are showing up. They're calling family members, friends, neighbors, fellow church members, anybody they could think of who could help. And they're obviously desperately trying to find their daughter. At this point, have no idea who could have taken her or why. News spread quickly. People were showing up to their home. It was chaotic. There were a ton of volunteers who showed up to look for her. They started canvassing the neighborhood. And unfortunately, the police hadn't taped off their house as a crime scene. And so all the people coming in and out... It just kind of destroyed any evidence that would have been left behind. Mary Catherine was taken upstairs and she was being questioned. And this poor girl, she's nine years old and she's just, you know, caught up in the chaos of this. And she's got the the vital information that that these grownups are trying to pull out of her. And it's just, I'm sure it it was traumatic, all of it. They had family members going down to the police station separately so that they could be questioned because... In a crime like this, everybody is a suspect. So they are doing everything they can. Family members are creating a website. They're hanging up flyers around town. And I actually remember I was in Utah that summer and I remember seeing her posters around town and I just, I felt awful. I knew that she was gone and she probably wasn't coming back. Within a week, there were private donors that had contributed $250,000 for a reward for any information leading up to her rescue. So let's go back a little bit further that morning, like two in the morning. 
the whole family's asleep, right? They live in Salt Lake City. It's a quiet area, quiet, nice neighborhood with pretty houses. There's a mountain nearby. And Elizabeth is sleeping in her bed next to her nine-year-old sister, Mary Catherine. In their backyard, unbeknownst to them, was a man who was looking for a way into the house. He had this long knife. He had a couple bags that were tied together with a rag and he had left them in the backyard and walked up to the house and he's walking around looking for doors or windows that might be open when he stumbles upon the cracked open door and cuts open the screen with his knife and lets himself into the house and in his mind he's like if this is God's will I can get into the house he will provide a way for me to get into the house so he gets in He doesn't hear anything. There's no sounds. So he quietly sneaks through the house and up the stairs and into Elizabeth's bedroom. He walked over to Elizabeth's bed and she woke up to him hovering over her with a knife to her throat. And he said, I have a knife to your neck. If you make a sound, I will kill you and your family. And so this poor 14 year old girl, I mean, how would you react even as an adult, but as a kid? She's like, okay, okay, please don't hurt me. Please don't hurt my family. So she gets up out of bed and Mary Catherine feels her get out of bed. And so she kind of wakes up and she recognizes what's going on. Like there's this strange guy in their, in their bedroom and she thinks he has a gun. It's a knife. She just knows he has a weapon. And so she closes her eyes and she pretends to be asleep. And this guy is grabbing Elizabeth by the arm and he takes her over to her closet and he tells her to put some some shoes on so she puts on some sneakers and with a knife to her back he forced her out of the house so they go into the backyard he picks up his bags and they just start walking and Elizabeth has no idea what's going on where they're going what his plan is and they just keep walking and they start heading up the mountain behind her house and on the way there was a police man who drove by Elizabeth for a minute is like, oh my gosh, thank goodness. I'm rescued already. And the guy was like, if you say anything, if you try anything, I will kill you. He had his knife to her back. And so what, what's she going to do? You know, she's stuck. She can't do anything. And on top of that, she was worried about him going back and hurting her family. So this police officer drives by, has no idea what's going on outside. He always had his arm at her waist or her shoulder, around her shoulder, grabbing her arm, whatever. He's always in contact with her with his knife in the other hand. And Elizabeth is begging and she's trying to negotiate. She's like, please, if you're going to rape me and kill me, can you please do it right here so that they can at least find my body? And it just didn't work. Nothing worked. And so she's left with no choice but to walk up this mountain with this crazy stranger. It was dark out, but she started to kind of take in what this guy looked like He was about average height. He had narrow shoulders, kind of a slim chest, long hair, a long beard. And she's like, oh my gosh, he looks familiar. Where do I know him from? This guy's name was David Brian Mitchell. And back in November, about seven months before she was kidnapped, Elizabeth was shopping with her mom and her sister in downtown Salt Lake City. And they passed this homeless guy and she kind of made eye contact with him. He was clean cut and well-groomed at the time. And he just looked like a normal guy who had hit a rough patch. And so Elizabeth's mom handed him $5 and offered him some work at their house just to do some repairs on the roof and stuff. And so he did. He came, he worked for him, 
And all the time that he was working for them, he was planning on how he was going to get Elizabeth. Because the moment he set eyes on her, he decided that she was the chosen one. She was the one who he was supposed to take and make his next wife. Mitchell was obviously a very troubled person, to say the least, but it didn't start in adulthood. He had been that way as, I mean, as far back as his life started. He was born into a Mormon family. He was one of six kids. His mom was a teacher. His dad was a social worker. And I don't know a ton about his childhood, but I think that maybe his parents screwed up somewhere. They, they did a couple weird things. I don't know enough about them to talk about them or mention it, but I'm sure you could find it if you wanted to, to know more about that. But at the age of 16, Mitchell exposed himself to a child and went to juvie for it. He ended up getting married when he was 19 to a 16-year-old, and they went on to have two kids together. That, of course, did not last. They got divorced. The mom got custody of both the kids, and so he kidnapped the kids, and he went to New Hampshire, and he joined a Hare Krishna commune. While he was there, he got addicted to drugs and alcohol, and then he came back to Salt Lake City. And his brother, who sounds like he was walking more of a straight path, had just gotten back from a, a mission for the LDS church, and he inspired his brother to seek sobriety. So he did. That didn't last. He got married again, this time to a lady named Debbie. She had three kids from a previous marriage, and then Debbie and Mitchell had two more together. So his blood children are tallied at four now. They ended up divorced. Debbie claimed that he was abusive, and she alleged that he sexually abused their three-year-old son, which knowing what I know about him now... I believe that to be 100% true, and it's disgusting. Years later, after the divorce, one of Debbie's daughters from her previous marriage claimed that Mitchell sexually abused her for years. It's a he said, she said, but let's look at the track record here. On the very day of his divorce from Debbie, he married a lady named Wanda Barzi. Wanda was seven years his senior. She came with six kids of her own, and she was very troubled herself. I don't know how you wouldn't be to marry such a monster as Mitchell. She, there's stories about how she fed their pet rabbit to her kids for dinner and made them eat it. Mitchell and Barzi shared this delusion together that Mitchell was a prophet of God and that he was having visions. He started going by the name Emmanuel and Barzi went by Hefziba. I think that's how you say it. I don't know. Hefziba. Hefziba. So you've got these two whacked out, messed up people, and then you have Elizabeth, who was very innocent, very sheltered. She lived in a bubble between her faith and her home and her family and the way that she was being raised. She was raised in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, which is also known, known as Mormon. She went to church every Sunday. She had lots of cousins. She was really close to them. She was close to her parents, her siblings, her grandparents. She just kind of lived this beautiful, charmed life. She was very obedient. She's kind of on the quiet side. She was a 4.0 student. She played the harp. She didn't wear makeup. She never had a boyfriend. You know, she's just one of those very, very good girls. And now she's being forced by this dirty old pedophile up a mountain, and she has no idea what's in store for her. All she knows is she is climbing this dirty mountain in her red silk pajamas and white tennis shoes, 
When they finally got to where they were going, Mitchell called out to somebody named Hepzibah, who Elizabeth would later come to know was Wanda Barzi. And she quickly realized that this lady was not a friend. She wasn't there to comfort her or help her. She was wearing this weird linen robe and she had straggly brown and gray hair. Her face was hard and broad. And she walked over to Elizabeth and she put her arms around her, but not as a hug, almost in an act of dominance to say, I'm number one. I know there's two of us now, but you're below me. As she looked around the camp, she took in that it was primitive, but it was pretty well stocked. Like it had been there for a while. The tent was this big six person tent. There was a tarp on the ground in front of it. There was another one hanging from the trees over it. And this is where Elizabeth's journey through hell really started. Barzy pulled Elizabeth into the tent and she forced her to undress, which was horrifying to her. This girl who always covered up and was very modest was forced to take off her clothes in front of this stranger lady so that she could bathe her. She had water in a basin and she was going to bathe her with it. And Elizabeth's arguing. She's like, no, I don't want to get naked. No, 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 no. Heck no. And she's like, I, I had a shower last night. And so Barzy calls out to Mitchell and, and she's like, she showered last night. Is that okay? And he's like, yeah, that's okay. But it didn't matter. She forced her to undress anyway in front of her so that she could put on this weird linen robe that she was also wearing. That is when she learned that this whole situation she was in right now, that was to be her wedding day. She was going to get married to Mitchell in this weird little ceremony. And so she's like screaming no and fighting. And, uh, you know, she what's she going to do? She's a kid against these two crazy adults. So Mitchell's like, if you ever scream, I'm going to duct tape your mouth. You keep your mouth shut. So they do this weird little ceremony. He says some words and now they're married. And then he forces her in the tent onto this old dirty bedding. And she knew it was coming and she fought and she begged. She's like, I'm, I'm just a little girl. I haven't even gotten my period yet, please. And so this stops him for a second and he calls out to Barzi and he's like, is that, is it still okay? And she's like, yeah, it's okay from outside the tent. And so this poor girl who thought she would wait to have sex until she was married was raped by this strange, dirty old man. And after he left the tent, she just laid on the floor sobbing. She felt like her soul had been crushed. She just felt broken and she felt like there was no point in continuing her life. She wondered if her family would still love her. I mean, she's so close to her family, yet she's wondering if they would still love her because she was that broken. She felt like she didn't care if he killed her, but it never occurred to her to take her own life. And that night she cried herself to sleep. Unfortunately, that would be the first of daily rapes for the next nine months of her life. When she woke up the next morning, there was a cable that was wrapped around her ankle and it was attached to another cable that was tied between two trees. So this gave her about 20 feet of movement and that was her new world. Mitchell and Barzi talked. I guess Mitchell talked incessantly. He was always talking and he told her that their names were Emmanuel and Hefzibah and that, their, that her new name, I don't know how to say this, but I'm just going to read it phonetically. 
Her new name would be Shirjashub. And she fought them on this. She's like, no, my name is Elizabeth. That's not my name. And they it, they went back and forth and they were like, no, this is your name and this is what we're going to call you. And so Elizabeth, who's trying to grab onto anything from her her life and anything that will help her remain the person she is, she's like, okay, well, if I have to change my name to a Bible name, can I at least pick? And so she settled on Esther because it started with an E like Elizabeth. And so they called her Esther for a while, but eventually they started calling her Shirjashub. They explained to her that her role was to be what they called a handmaiden, which essentially meant that she would be Mitchell's sex slave and Barzi's regular slave. So she's trying to process everything, but one thought that came to her in those early days was, I have a family. I have a family who loves me, and they're going to love me no matter what, and they're going to be there for me if I ever get back. Knowing this with a surety made her determined to survive no matter what it took, whether that meant being rescued or outliving her captors. There were times when she was like, okay, you know, they, they've got to be in their 50s. I'm only 14. They've got 30 years at best left. I can outlive them. 30 more years. I've got this. I'm going to survive. So she made the decision that she was going to play the game as best she could to survive. After eating a lunch of onions, raisins, and carrots mixed with mayonnaise and rolled in a, into a tortilla, she was raped again. And Mitchell, who talked constantly, mostly about how he was a prophet, told Elizabeth that the next day they were all going to go naked and play Adam and Eve. And then he and Barzi were going to dem- demonstrate some some sexual acts for her and then make Elizabeth watch. And she's horrified and just crying. And all she can do is sit there and just take it. So she goes to bed and the next day they got up. They always got up when the sun came up and she had no choice but to get up with them. True to what he had said the day before, he forced her to take her clothes off and they went to do their weird Adam and Eve thing. He explained to her that the Bible says you have to descend below everything before you can rise above them. And this is why he was doing this. This is kind of what he lived by. This is how he justified everything he did. And he forced Elizabeth to do these things too. But, you know, you and I both know, and Elizabeth knew, that what this really was was a dirty old pedophile who only cared about sex and drugs. That's what he lived for. That's what he did everything for. Three days into her captivity, Elizabeth was just sitting in camp. She always sat on this bucket that was right there. And she's sitting on her bucket and she hears a voice calling her name. And it was distant, but it got a little louder and she recognized the voice. This was her uncle. He was looking for her and she wanted to scream, I'm here, I'm here, I'm over here, please come help me. But Mitchell reminded her that he had his knife and if he, if she screamed or did anything, he would go down and kill her family. He told her that if he came into their camp, he would kill him. And so as much as she wanted to be rescued, she did not want to risk her or her uncle's, or her family's lives. So she said nothing. She stayed quiet. And then her uncle's voice is gone. And that bit of hope was dashed. It was gone just like that. And she cried herself to sleep that night. 
The next morning, she was sitting on the bucket that she spent her days on, and she, she heard what sounded like a helicopter, and it got louder and louder, and so Mitchell's freaking out, and he shoves Elizabeth and Barzy into the tent, and they're all sitting in the tent listening intently as this helicopter is moving closer till it's hovering right above their camp, and it stayed there for a few minutes, and Elizabeth was like, oh my gosh, I'm rescued. Oh my gosh, they're going to save me. Thank the Lord. But then the helicopter started to move away and then it was gone. She thought that maybe they were going to get more people or the police. Somebody was going to come back. They found their camp and somebody was going to come back and rescue her, but nobody ever did. About a week into her captivity, she learned about how Mitchell would go plundering in Babylon, which is what he called it when he went into town to go basically steal food. They were out of food and he would, he wouldn't try to get more before they ran out. They always ran out first and then he would go into town and steal food. It was a long hike into town because they were high up on the mountain. Their camp was high up on the mountain so nobody would find them. Elizabeth was like, oh, thank goodness. I don't have to listen to him talk all day. He won't be able to rape me while he's gone. This is great. But then after a full day of no food or water, she started to wonder if he was ever going to come back. She was hungry. She was thirsty. And finally, around 11 that night, he came back. And it turns out it wasn't the hike that took so long. It was that Mitchell, every time he went into town, he wanted to party. He always went and got some kind of alcohol, beer, liquor. He wanted to smoke. He wanted to just kind of hang out for the day before he went back to his wives up at his camp. This particular time, he found a bunch of missing posters of Elizabeth. So he grabbed one and he showed it to her. And he was just so proud of himself that he had captured her. And Elizabeth, in her mind, she's like, oh my gosh, they're looking for me. Oh, thank goodness they're looking for me. Okay, I can, you know, I'm holding out hope. Here's some more hope. But she's hungry. And so she's waiting for Mitchell to stop talking about how proud he is of her missing posters and how he captured her and then he says like this 40 minute prayer and she's like oh my gosh I'm starving when can I eat she knew that if she ate anything before they told her she could she'd be in big trouble so he finishes the prayer and he pours her a full cup of wine for this child who has never drank before who made a promise to never drink in her life now he's forcing her to drink this wine And I mean, this is a big deal to her. It's not a big deal to some people, but it was to her. And he was like, if you don't drink this, then you're not going to eat. You're not eating until you drink this. You're not going to sleep. You're not going to do anything. And so she drank it and she's, you know, gets this full cup down, the first drink she's ever had. And she's like, okay, I did it. Now I can eat. And then he pours her another cup and he makes her drink that too. She's starting to realize how little say, if any say, she has in any of her decisions. And she, after experiencing, you know, almost being rescued a few times, she decided that she's just going to focus on her survival and she's just going to do whatever it takes to survive. So she measured every situation by the question, is this going to help me survive? And so if he's going to make her drink wine, then she's going to drink wine. She learned quickly that the water, they kept water in these jugs and, you know, it sat under the sun. It was hot. It tasted like plastic, but she didn't care. It was the only water they had. It was so much better than nothing. 
and she learned that he would wait until it was dry, it was all gone, before he made his way down to the stream. It was kind of a crappy hike to get water. And after four weeks of captivity, he started to untether her from these from this cable and these trees to hike down with him so that she could carry the heavy jugs back up so that he didn't have to. And while they were there, they would bathe in this stream. It was freezing water. And in the moments that she was untethered, he always made sure to remind her that if she tried to run, he would kill her family. And he would threaten her with brutal details about her family. Like he would he would paint a picture because he remember he was working at their house so he knew what her siblings looked like who her parents were like not intimately but more intimately than some stranger off the street which is what he was but you know he'd been at their house so he he knew who they were and so it really felt like a real threat to her he would say things like do you really think the police can protect them is that what you want each member of your family dead, I'll kill them and it'll be all your fault. And she just, she heard this constantly every day. It was to the point that she was pretty brainwashed into believing that he was capable of it and that he would do it. I mean, maybe he would. He kidnapped her. He was capable of that. She knew that he could get food and alcohol with no money. I mean, he, he, he was doing it. He was doing terrible things. So why not? Why wouldn't he kill her family? After forcing her to drink, he started forcing her to smoke cigarettes, and he would try to get her to smoke whatever dope he had, but she wasn't doing it right. She wasn't inhaling it right, and he was like, oh, never mind, can't waste that. So he, I think that was like a one-off. He made her try to smoke it. She didn't do it right, and he was like, never mind, never mind. It had been a month, so the 4th of July came around, and the holiday itself just reminded her of memories with her family and her cousins, and what they might be doing on that day. And I'm sure it made the day harder. Their day consisted of some chicken that he brought back up from town that sat in the sun all day. And then they cooked it over a fire. And then they hiked to the top of a mountain so that they could watch fireworks, which was something that Elizabeth wanted. And it was kind of a nice break to be untethered from that tree. He would always hold the end of the cable. So she, you know, like a leash but she was away from the tree so they're up on the mountain watching the fireworks she was tossing a rubber rubber ball around with her captors and they went back down to the camp afterwards and Barzy made popcorn over the fire and then Mitchell got this dark twisted look on his face and he announced that it was time for some disgusting act sexual act that Elizabeth doesn't even describe or mention by name. She was just so horrified by it. And he told her that they would demonstrate for her and then it would be her turn. And that was her 4th of July. The next morning he made her get drunk and then he followed through on this demonstration whatever. At one point he tried to kiss her and she bit his tongue hard and he got mad and told her that if she ever did that again he would withhold sex from her. And she's like, Uh, in that moment she's like oh my gosh I knew his brain was twisted but his brain is really twisted he thinks or at least told Elizabeth that God had chosen her to be his wife and that she was so lucky for it he told her all about how she was not his first choice 
there had been some other lady named Kelly who they, him and Barzi approached about becoming his second wife, like joining their little sister wife situation. And Mitchell and Kelly started sleeping together. And then Kelly wanted him all for herself. And Barzi is like, oh, hell no. And she argued that Kelly wasn't chosen of God. That was her, her, her argument. But at the same time, she was also enraged when she found out that Kelly was cheating on Mitchell with another man. And she's like, "Uh uh-uh, you don't do that to my man. So they withdrew the offer of marriage. What will Kelly ever do? Doesn't that just sound like some weird high school drama? Except it's really weird, delusional, middle-aged people with crazy hair and crazy eyes. Elizabeth learned over time that Mitchell believed God wanted him to have seven wives, and they had to be pure, and they had to be from a Mormon home. Elizabeth, I mean, Elizabeth hardly talked. She just had to listen to Mitchell as he just droned on and on. And one day he was telling her all about how his mom had gotten a restraining order against him after he had pushed her down a flight of stairs. And during this long-winded story, he mentioned where she lived. And poor Elizabeth, you know, her whole world before this was her family and friends. And so she was like, she made the connection that his mom was neighbors with her cousin Olivia, who was about her age. When she made that connection, she she felt this spark of joy and she started talking about Olivia and she gave him a little too much detail because Mitchell knew the house that she was talking about. The next day, he announced that Olivia would become his next wife and Elizabeth's heart dropped. She just felt so much despair. She had betrayed her cousin she didn't mean to and so she's just sick and on July 24th he went into town to get Olivia and Elizabeth was just she was panicking all day she was a tangled she was a tangled bundle of nerves waiting to find out what happened and so she's just praying she's too sick to eat and she's begging God please protect her do not let let him take her. The whole day went by. The next morning he was still gone. And then Elizabeth started to get worried that he had gotten caught. And that that was scary because that meant that Barzi, who was just as awful as him, would leave Elizabeth cabled and take off and, and leave her to die. And so on top of worrying about her cousin, she was worried she was going to die because he got caught. He did not come back the whole rest of the day until the following morning. So for two days, she was just living in absolute panic and fear and anxiety. And when he came back, he was alone. As it turns out, when he got to Olivia's house, he did find a window was open. And this drives me nuts. Close your windows, people. Lock your doors. Lock them. Check them. Double check. Triple check. Do it. So he found a window open and he opened it up and he climbed in and he's like, oh my yes I'm gonna get my next wife and as he climbed in something fell he knocked something off the windowsill and it crashed onto the floor and he sat there for a minute and he didn't hear anything so he's like okay I'm good so he started climbing in some more and then he knocked something else off the windowsill and at this point the lights are flipping on somebody's running down the hallway and they're shouting and he's like oh never mind and he ran away and that was that And Barzi, at this point, she's getting sick of Mitchell's shite. 
Mitchell and Barzy fought like cats and dogs all the time. It was just such an evil place to be. But the contention from the fighting on top of it, it was just so much for sweet little Elizabeth who did not come from a home like that. One fight was so bad. This was after he tried to kidnap Olivia. One fight, this fight was so bad with Barzy that Bar- that Barzy took off. And after a couple days, Mitchell was like, I don't know if she's coming back. She always does, but she hasn't yet. And so he's starting to get worried. And of course, he's not worried about Barzy. He's worried about what Barzy might do. So he was forced to untether Elizabeth and together they went to this lower camp and they were looking for her, any signs that she'd been there and they couldn't find her. And the whole trip was a bust. And so they went back to their camp. Elizabeth was retethered right away. And then suddenly Barzy was back. She had cooled off at this point a little bit, but she was still seething a little bit. She was pretty pissed. And Mitchell was like, listen, babe, I just want to remind you that you are the chosen mother of Zion. Don't forget that. Your support to me, the prophet, means that you're the chosen mother of Zion. Don't forget your role. So he kind of pacifies her a little bit with those crazy words. A few days later, Barzi's just like getting to the point where she's she's over it all and she's going to push boundaries. So a few days after this whole argument situation, Mitchell was getting ready to go down into town for supplies and Barzi confronted him. And she's like, why do you get to go? Why do you get to get out of the camp? Why do you get to go party and drink and smoke? Why do you get to see other people? I want to go. And so Elizabeth is seeing an opportunity and she's like, yeah, yeah, me too. Please, please. And so the two of them are pushing and pushing and pushing and he was not into it. But eventually after more pushing, he was like, fine. But there were going to be rules. If they were going to go into the city, they had to put veils on that would cover their faces. So nobody could see their, their nose, mouths, their hair. All that was showing was their eyes. So they fashioned these these weird face veil things out of who knows what. They're linen cloth robes. And they put them on and they start down the mountain. And they stopped at the shoe tree to switch out. They, they kept their hiking boots or sandals at the shoe tree, depending on what they needed. So they stopped at the shoe tree to switch out of their hiking boots because... You know, if you're if you're going to be a prophet and wear prophet clothes, you got to have prophet sandals. You can't just be having prophet clothes with hiking boots. People will get suspicious. So they put on their prophet sandals and they continued into town. Elizabeth had not been back into the city since she had been kidnapped. And so this was like a new wave of hope for her. She hoped that maybe somebody would recognize her. They were going to be among people. She knew people were looking for her. So she's like, oh, please let somebody rescue me. She, in, in her brainwashed mind, she felt like if she was going to be rescued, she couldn't have any part of that rescue. It had to be all of somebody else's doing so that her family would survive. That was what Mitchell brainwashed her into thinking. Like if she did anything that promoted her rescue, he was going to kill her family. And so she felt this heavy weight of responsibility to protect her family. So she's like, please let somebody recognize me. But their parents, I mean, their parents, they, they look like freaks. And so 
their appearance is repelling people. Nobody wants to really talk to them. They're avoiding eye contact. They're just trying to walk by without any any conversation or eye contact or anything with these people. And the whole way they're walking, Mitchell keeps reminding her, I'll kill your family. Don't do anything stupid. On this particular day in a town, they stopped off at a grocery store. And then he forced Elizabeth into a public restroom and made her chug a couple of beers. And then after that, he went to a liquor store. And Elizabeth and Barzy waited outside for him. And then he led them over to Liberty Park, where they drank rum and coke. And then on the way back to camp, he remembered, Mitchell remembered, that the boy who had been ringing, ringing him up at the grocery store told him about this house party that night. And Mitchell's like, oh, we got to go to that. So they went. And there were lots of people. There was lots of liquor and beer, probably lots of drugs, lots of loud music. And Elizabeth, you know, she's got her veil on and her linen dress thing, robe, and some guys trying to come on to her. And I, you can imagine what kind of guy this was. <laughs> like, how desperate are you that you're coming on to a girl in a robe whose face you can't see? But then Mitchell intervened and then he forced her to drink absinthe. And then he's like, oh, yeah, I can't wait to drink. This stuff's awesome. And he chugs it. So he's out of it. He started getting up on a table and preaching and people were getting pissed off and they kicked him out. And so we were like, all right, I guess we better head back up to camp. So they went back up to camp and they finally got there right before the break of dawn. And this became their routine for a little while. Go into town, party it up. Sounds like a great time. And when they did go into town, people would stare. Sometimes they would ask questions, but nothing ever came of it for Elizabeth, considering she was in her hometown around so many people. Nothing ever came of it. And so her hope is just starting to, it's taking a dump. And then it was almost non-existent because one morning Mitchell announced that the Lord wanted them to move. And so he's going on and on about why and how he's the prophet and they have to move. And Elizabeth is reassuring herself that, you know, it's going to be okay. They only have about 30 years left on earth. I will, I will outlive them. I will. I'm a lot younger than them. And then in the middle of these thoughts, she suddenly felt this shiver of warmth through her body and a voice clear inside her head that said, no, it won't be that long. And in that moment, she knew that that wasn't her thought. That was a thought that was placed into her head. And it filled her with warmth and relief. And she just felt like God was with her. And so that moment, it was such a quick little moment, but it kind of restored her hope. They're they're in Utah. So the winter's coming. The winters are brutal in Utah. It's cold. It's snowy. It's gray. And they're like, we got to go somewhere warm and sunny. So they decide that they're going to go to San Diego. The next day they headed to the library and they just to study some maps and figure out their exact plan. And when they walked in, they're in their robes, you know, and there's a, there was a man near the entrance of the library and he was kind of staring at him. And then he looked at Elizabeth and she saw him pull out his phone and step outside to make a call. Next thing she knows, they're sitting at this table studying maps when a guy in plain clothes walks over and introduces himself as a homicide detective and he had questions. He said, we received a few calls that 
this young lady right here might be the person that we're looking for. So can I please just look at her face to just to make sure it's not, you know? And Elizabeth, who's afraid of doing anything wrong to set Mitchell off onto her family, lowered her eyes and she felt Barzi and Mitchell threatening her just by their demeanor. Barzi was pinching her leg, reminding her, don't you say anything? And all she could do was sit there and listen to Mitchell go back and forth with this detective about how this is their religion. She is my daughter. I can't show her face. It's against our religion. And she, he had this whole spiel and he was calm and collected through the whole thing to the point that this man was like, okay, I guess I can't do anything. And he left. And this was post 9-11, very, very soon after 9-11. So religion and you know, religious garments and things like that were a very touchy subject and kind of hard to, to navigate, I guess. And so between, you know, doing his job and trying to be respectful to religious people, yeah, he, he walked away. So they left the library and Mitchell's like, we got to go now. We're going to San Diego now. So they made preparations and by September they headed to San Diego. They went to a Greyhound bus station and, you know, Elizabeth is in public. She's doing everything that she can, that she thinks she has power over to get somebody to recognize her. And she's making eye contact with people and trying to communicate with her eyes. And some nasty lady looks at her and she's looking at this lady thinking, oh, you know, she looks like maybe she's a mom. Maybe she can help me. And so she's like making eye contact with her. And this lady goes, what are you staring at? Don't you know that's rude? And why don't you take that rag off your face? And so Elizabeth just like averts her eyes. And I hope that lady knows who, she, who Elizabeth is now. And she feels dusty for the rest of her whole entire life. You're not the main character, okay? This is, she's not staring at you. Anyway, so they get on the Greyhound bus and they get to San Diego and they choose to go to Lakeside, which is kind of southeast San Diego, and that's going to be their new home. They find a place to set up camp, and around them were a bunch of prickly pears, and so they started surviving on the, these prickly pears, which Elizabeth said they didn't taste good, but after she kind of got used to them, they weren't that bad, and so she, you know, and then she was forced to drink beer all the time, which is much stronger in California than it is Utah, so she's living off prickly pears and beer. And at one point, he made her drink so much of this beer that's much stronger than she's used to at this point that she crawled, tried to crawl to the tent, and she puked everywhere and she passed out on her own vomit. And she just felt like it was just such a degrading moment. And this, you know, this was her life. Well, they're there for a couple months and then Thanksgiving rolls around and they're like, well, we got to celebrate. They took the metro downtown to Hometown Buffet, where they were serving a free meal to the homeless. And, of course, it, I'm, you know, it's the best thing Elizabeth has had in her whole life because she's so hungry. And then after they were done there, they walked to a store that was known for their pies. And Mitchell bought them a pumpkin pie, and they all shared it. And it was amazing. And then after that, they just kind of wandered the streets. And then they found out that there was going to be a truck that was going to be delivering dinners to homeless people. So they went to find this truck and when they got there it was absolute chaos. There was no structure, there's no rhyme or reason. People were fighting. There were 
knocking plates all over the floor. Some people were grabbing what they could and running away. It was just, it was chaotic and they didn't get anything. So at that point, they're like, let's just go home. And that was her Thanksgiving. While she was in bed that night, she was like, well, it's Thanksgiving. So, you know, let me list off the things I'm grateful for. And she started thinking in her head, okay, I still have a family. I was able to eat a real lunch today. I'm healthy. I'm cap captive, but I'm healthy. Uh, we've got this tent that's keeping the sun off. And she just kept thinking of things. Her list just went on and on until she fell asleep, which I think is amazing for a 14, 15 year old girl who's who living in health. Not long after Thanksgiving, Mitchell decided that it was time to go capture his next wife. And he decided that his next wife was an El Cajon and she was going to be at a Mormon church. And so he put on his best clothes, his best Sunday clothes, and he headed down to El Cajon to the Mormon church. But that night he came back alone. When he had gone to church, he didn't see any girls he wanted. But while he was walking through the parking lot to leave, a guy from the ward invited him over for dinner. And he's like, oh yeah, free dinner. Yeah, okay, I'll be there. And while he was there, he discovered they had a daughter and that was going to be his next wife. He had planned to take her. Then it was Christmas. So on Christmas Day, they took the metro to a convention hall that was feeding homeless people. And Elizabeth looks around and she's seeing that the volunteers who were there were girls just like her. Teenage girls who were serving people. And she just thought, this should be me. I should not be here being served as a homeless person. After they ate, they walked around downtown and this young guy came around the corner and he was, you know, in the Christmas spirit. And so he gave each of them a radio with matching headphones. And Elizabeth, you know, this is like the best thing that's happened to her since she's been kidnapped. And so she puts her headphones on and she turns on a Christmas station and she's just enjoying this music so much. It's making her feel just a little dose of normalcy. And Mitchell goes, those who enjoy the sounds of Hollywood are enjoying the sounds of hell. And he makes her take them off and throw them in the trash. And then half a block later, he pulls out his radio and puts his headphones on and starts listening to the very same music that she was trying to listen to. And all Barzi could do was laugh. As they were walking back towards camp, they came across a, a hustler. So Mitchell tried to open the doors because he wanted to go in, but they were locked. So he's like, well, let's just go home. And that was her Christmas. Then January 4th came around. And that was the day that Mitchell was going to go capture his next victim. He packs up his bags. He grabs his knife and he starts walking. And Barzi and Elizabeth are sitting at camp just waiting to find out what happens and Elizabeth was always a bundle of nerves. Just, she did not want this for anybody else. But the next morning, he came back and he was alone. Another failure. And he always compared these failed kidnappings to Abraham and Isaac. He was like, oh, it's just a trial of my faith. It's not time yet. I was wrong. It's just a trial of my faith. What happened was he had gotten to the house and he found a sliding door in the back unlocked. Again, lock your doors and windows, people. And when he opened it, there was a large man snoring in the in the room. And so he left. And he was like, oh, yeah, never mind. I guess she's not my wife. A couple more weeks went by and they were all just sitting at camp doing nothing. And somebody started walking towards 
the camp and calling out like, hey, is anybody there? And Mitchell got his knife out and ready to attack. And they all just stayed quiet because, you know, Elizabeth is afraid to say anything. He doesn't want this guy to be killed. The man kept calling out. They weren't answering. He kept walking towards them. And then suddenly he just stopped and turned around for some reason. Maybe he was getting that gut feeling that something was up and and he should leave. But that made Mitchell want to leave that camp. He was like, we got to find somewhere else to live. So they picked up their camp and they went somewhere else. And by mid-February, Barzy was losing it more than ever. They got into another big fight. She threatened to kill herself. She's holding the knife to her wrist and Mitchell's just ignoring her. And he's like, oh, tale as old as time. But then he started to realize she was kind of serious. And so instead of killing herself, she left camp. When she came back the next day, she said Satan and his hosts surrounded and tortured her the night before. And that her fight is over now. Her election into heaven has been made sure and she doesn't have to fight anymore. And Mitchell got mad and then he left. And they didn't know where he went. And he was gone for a long time. The food was gone. The water was gone. So they're not just thirsty or hungry. They're hungry and thirsty. And they knew if they didn't drink something soon, they'd die. So Elizabeth, one night during this whole week that he was gone, was just praying for a miracle. She's like, God, I know that I'm going to die if I don't get water soon. This is dire. And so at this point, she's just praying for a miracle because she doesn't know, she didn't see any way out of this. Shortly after her prayers, she fell asleep and then she was woken up to rain. There was a huge rainfall. And so they both ran out and they caught as much of it as they could with what they had, all the jugs and buckets and whatever they had. Mitchell had been gone for seven days. They hadn't eaten in seven days. And at this point, Elizabeth was mentally preparing to die. She was like talking to God and, you know, thanking him and praying for forgiveness wherever she needed it. And then Mitchell finally shows up and he's got a bucket of KFC. So they sit down to their KFC And they have to listen to Mitchell and his whole long-winded story about what happened that week. When he went into town, he went straight to a gas station to steal some beer. And then he saw a woman with pills, so he assaulted her and stole her pills. He ran away from her and broke into a church, which he believed was rightfully his. He's like, this is, I'm a prophet. I can stay here. So he breaks in. He passes out on the floor of the church. He wakes up to police who are taking him to jail. While he was being booked into jail, he flashes a female officer. And then seven days later, he talks his way out of jail. (laughs) And I feel like that sums up this psychotic man very well. So everything kind of settles back down and they're sitting at camp. And then another helicopter comes and it it looks like Elizabeth is going to be rescued. But then it went and Mitchell took this as another sign that he needs to move. They need to move. They need to go somewhere else. They need to leave California and go somewhere else. So him and Barzi are talking about all their options. New York gets brought up, Boston, Philadelphia, just all the places they could go. And Elizabeth is like, if I go to the east side of this country, I will never be rescued. She's still holding hope out, you know? And then she started to formulate a plan in her head. And before she went on to execute this plan, she said a prayer. And she asked God that this would work. She went and she told them that she had this feeling they should go back to Salt Lake City. And 
at first he's like, what? No. And she's like, I know God would never talk to me the way that, that he talks to you, but I just, I don't know. It's just this feeling I have. And she was able to manipulate him enough into believing that that was the right choice, that they should go back to Salt Lake City. And so he's like, you're right. Okay. Yeah. Let's go back. So now they just had to find a way. And Elizabeth was like, what if we hitchhiked? And she, you know, obviously she didn't want to hitchhike, but she wanted to be in contact with other people as much as she could be. And so after some talking and manipulating and convincing, Mitchell agreed. And he was like, okay, let's, okay, we're going to hitchhike back to Salt Lake City. Let's do it. And he's like, the first thing we need to do is get you out. We've got to get out of these robes. Nobody's going to want to pick up hitchhikers looking like this. We've got to get some street clothes. And I think they just went and scavenged some homeless camps and found what they could. And then they were like, okay, they're calling her Shirja Shove at this point. Shirja Shove, you can't be looking like that. You got to cut your hair and dye it. And of all people, of all things, Barzi came to her defense and was like, no, hair is a woman's crown. Don't make her cut it. It's like the only nice thing she ever did for Elizabeth. I don't know. Maybe it it was probably rooted in some deep-seated issues she has, but either way, she didn't care. She didn't have to cut her hair. They decided on a wig. So they go down to the dollar store. They pick out a very, very high-quality wig, as you can imagine. It was gray and some sunglasses, and that's her disguise. It's like, okay, it, are you truly trying to fool people? Because this is a 14-year-old girl with a gray wig walking around with sunglasses on. What? This is an obvious disguise, but that's, that's what he wanted. So that's what they did. And then they set out for Salt Lake City. They packed up their things and they set out and then they started walking with their thumbs out, hitchhiking. And it was hot. It was rough. They were hungry and thirsty. The rides came and went. They were very sporadic. Sometimes they were just a couple miles. Sometimes they were a little longer, but they're very sporadic. A couple different times people had seen them and so they passed them and drove to get them food or water and then circled back and dropped it off to them and they helped out that way which was a huge help because they were hungry and thirsty and then this old Winnebago stopped for them. He like drove by it first and Elizabeth was thanking her lucky stars because it looked so shady and then it circled back and she's like dang it. So this guy opens the door and the inside of the van's disgusting. It's filthy. There's like cutouts of naked women everywhere. And he's like, hey guys, come on in. Sorry, I saw that you had a couple ladies with you. It took me a minute to open the door because I, you know, I didn't want to offend the ladies. And Elizabeth is like, what other pictures did you have? He was like taking pictures down before he opened the door. And she's like, there are naked women on the wall. What walls? What kind of, What? Anyway, the guy was weird. He kept, like, hinting that he wanted to get after Elizabeth, but luckily Marshall was feeling particularly possessive, and he's like, not gonna happen, bud, but he's like, okay, it's fine. His name is Charlie. He's like, okay, no big deal. It's, we can be friends still, and he's like, hey, do you want to come to this, uh, this nudist camp that I'm headed to, and Mitchell's like, do I ever? That sounds amazing. Of course he wants to go, so that's where they went. And again, Mitchell was feeling possessive. And so thank goodness Elizabeth didn't have to go naked into these springs that they were all stripping down to get into. He made her put a shirt and some shorts on. They stayed the night there. And then the next day, the Winnebago guy, Charlie, dropped them off in a small town outside of Vegas. So they're getting there. 
they're making way. A few more rides, and they made it into Vegas, and they went to a Burger King. And while they're at a Burger King, you know, they're getting stares. People are staring at them. Somebody called the police. And again, it was the same thing in the library. This policeman was asking him questions, Mitchell questions, and Mitchell just talked his way out of it. But after that, he was spooked. He was like, you know, ranting and raving and telling Elizabeth that once they got back to camp in Salt Lake City, she was going to stay there until the Lord said it was okay to come out. And so her hope is like, it just up and down. Like she had these moments of like, okay, it's going to be okay. And then moments like this, where she's like, if we end up back at this camp, if we make it all the way there without anybody intervening, I, I'm screwed. So he's just trying to get back to camp as soon as possible in Utah. And they walk to a gas station and there's just a bunch of semi-trucks fueling up. And one guy offered them a ride and he took them all the way to Orem or outside of Orem, which is not far from Salt Lake City at all. So they ride with this guy. Everything's fine. Elizabeth fell asleep and then she was woken up and they were there. They were in Utah. And she's like, oh my gosh, six months. It's been six months. I'm finally back in Utah. I'm closer to my family than I have been in a long time. But Mitchell was starting to get the heebie-jeebies. He had this look of uncertainty on his face. He was like, oh, maybe we shouldn't have done this. Maybe this was a bad idea. But they were there. So they set up camp for the night. And like every night, he raped her. But unbeknownst to either of them, that would be the last time he ever put his hands on her. The next morning, they broke camp and they continued to travel back to their main camp in Salt Lake City. There, It involved a lot of walking, a lot of different buses, lots of people staring, some people asking questions. But they're almost back to camp. And Elizabeth knew that once they were back at camp, she was going to be screwed. On their way, they stopped off at Walmart to grab a few things. And when they left, on their way out, she saw a wall of missing posters. And so she's, you know, searching, looking for her face to see if she's up there. And she couldn't see see herself, but Mitchell's like pushing her. And he's like, stop drawing attention to yourself. Come on, let's go. Nobody cares about you anymore. They stopped looking for, you know, he's just feeding her lies. So they leave Walmart and they're walking and they get about two blocks when a police car stops right next to them. And they just kind of avoid eye contact and they keep walking. And then another police car comes up right next to them. And then there's another one in front of them. And Mitchell knew that it it was over. He was like, oh, we shouldn't have done it. And Elizabeth is sick with emotions, all sorts of emotions, because she's like scared for her family she wants to go home. She's hopeful that this is going to be the time she's rescued. But what does this mean for her family? What's Mitchell going to do to my family? These police officers are jumping out of their car and they're questioning Mitchell and he's just ignoring them until they get aggressive and and he starts to crack and break. And that cool, calm facade that he always put on was breaking. It was obvious he was guilty. So while some of them are talking to Mitchell, one officer goes over to Elizabeth and he asks her what her name was. And he was kind of, he was kind of rough. Like he wasn't gentle with her or acting like he was her friend. And so, you know, she's, 
in this position where she's scared, she's hopeful, this guy's being kind of rough with her. She doesn't know what to think. She doesn't know what's going to happen. And so she doesn't know what to do. And finally, another officer recognized that she's scared. And she's like, dude, he's like, dude, she's scared. She, she doesn't want to talk. I mean, she's afraid to say anything. We need to get her alone. So they kind of reconvene and decide, okay, you take them over here. I'm going to go over here and talk to this girl. And so another officer got her by herself and asked her gently what her name was. And she wanted to tell him so bad. She wanted to go home. She wanted to be rescued. But she was so scared because all she could hear in her head was Mitchell's threats. I will kill your family. I will kill your brother. I will kill your baby brother. I will kill your sister. So the officer finally leans in and speaks gently to her and says, Are you Elizabeth Smart? Because if you are, your family has missed you so much since you were gone. They want you back. They love you and they want you to come home. And after that, she felt peace and a sense of calm and reassurance. And she was finally able to find the words, I am Elizabeth. And for whatever reason, the police didn't really make it easy on her. They put handcuffs on her and put her into the back of a police car And she looked over and she saw Mitchell and Barzy being handcuffed and being put into a police car. And that was the last time she would see them for years. She was taken down to the police station. They uncuffed her, put her in a room and she's sitting on the couch and they're like, you can take off your disguise now. And they walked out. And so she's like, am I in trouble? What's going to happen? What's going on? And then the next thing she knows, the door swings open and her dad was standing there. And he ran to her and he hugged her. And he just, they couldn't believe that they were back together again. There's just this indescribable feeling of happiness and relief. And after that, they were taken to headquarters. And Elizabeth was finally reunited with her mom. And then she was reunited with her siblings there. It was just like this beautiful reunion. Because they had no idea who took their daughter they thought they would never see her again, but they, they fought and they did what they had to do. And thankfully she was rescued. I remember hearing the news that she was found and I could not believe it. I thought it was such a miracle that this girl after nine months was still alive. She had, you know, she had to go to the hospital. She was taken to the hospital. And after that, she finally got to go home. And it was just kind of a surreal moment for her. Just like, oh, my living room, this plush carpet, my bedroom. And her bedroom hadn't been touched. Sure, I think she made a joke about it. Like, mom, you couldn't even clean up? And her mom was like, she didn't laugh. She was like, Elizabeth, I I couldn't. Every time I came in here, I just, I couldn't do it. And so, you know, they cleaned up together. And she went and she took a bubble bath. And she just, that night, she laid in her bed. You know, the bed she was taken out of. But this time, she's just laying there with so much gratitude grateful for every little thing her bed the fact she was home with her family the fact she didn't have to sleep in this dirty tent that nobody was going to rape her just everything she could think of she was just going down the list in her mind of the things she was grateful for and while she was doing this she remembered the miracles that she experienced during her nine months of hell she had a thought crystal clear in her head while she was being held captive, that God was protecting her and that her grandpa was there with her and he was keeping her safe. Her grandpa 
had died the week before she was taken. She was at his funeral two days before. She was very close to him and he was always healthy, but then he got a brain tumor and his health declined quickly and he died the week before she was taken and he felt she felt him there with her. Another miracle that she will never forget was a few weeks into her captivity, they ran out of water and you know, you can live longer without food than you can water. You can only go a few days without water. And it was getting to that point. Like, Mitchell wasn't getting more. She had no choice. It was the middle of summer. She was so thirsty. It was unreal how thirsty she was. And after two full days of being in the heat with no water, she was woken up from her sleep by something. And she didn't know what had woken her up, but it, it woke her up. And she looked over and she saw a yellow cup sitting by her pillow filled to the brim with ice cold water. And she's like, first of all, there's no way my captors would have done this. They were over there fast asleep. She had no idea where it came from. I, I, there was no rain. It was dry. They had no water. If they did, it wouldn't have been cold. And so she chalked it up to a miracle and a reminder that God had not left her. And it indicated to her that God had a plan. And that the fight for freedom wasn't over. That there was still hope. Like, that moment signified all of that to her. Obviously, her story was far from over. This whole nightmare, you know, part of it was over. But she still had a lot of hurdles to overcome. But on her first day back at home, her mom pulled her aside. And she said, and this is a quote from her book, it says, she said, before it gets too crazy, I need to tell you something. Elizabeth, what this man has done is terrible. There aren't any words that are strong enough to describe how wicked and evil he is. He has taken nine months of your life that you will never get back again. But the best punishment you could ever give him is to be happy, to move forward with your life, to do exactly what you want. Because yes, this will probably go to trial and some kind of sentencing will be given to him and that wicked woman. But even if that's true, you may never feel like justice has been served or that true restitution has been made. But you don't need to worry about that. At the end of the day, God is our ultimate judge. He will make up to you every pain and loss that you have suffered. And if it turns out that these wicked people are not punished here on earth, it doesn't matter. His punishments are just. You don't ever have to worry. You don't ever have to think about them again. You be happy, Elizabeth. Just be happy. If you go and feel sorry for yourself, or if you dwell on what has happened, if you hold on to your pain, that's allowing him to steal more of your life away. So don't you do that. Don't you let him. There's no way that he deserves that. Not one more second of your life. You keep every second for yourself. You keep them and be happy. God will take care of the rest. End quote. And so that's what Elizabeth chose to do. Eight years went by before she saw Brian David Mitchell again. And in that eight years, she finished high school. She pursued a degree in music performance at BYU. She made lots of new memories with her family and her friends. And she lived a full eight years of life, you know, between... That's a lot of living between teenagehood and adulthood. And she did it all. During those eight years, Mitchell was in jail, and he did everything he could to get out of paying the piper. He pretended he was sick. He pretended he was insane. 
whatever he could think of. Elizabeth went on an 18-month mission for her church in Paris, and that's when the trial took place, and she was able to come home for a little bit to be with her family during that that time during the trial, but she was anxious to get back out and finish her mission. And the next time she saw Mitchell was in the courthouse. And when he was being escorted in, he was singing. And it was just this weird, gross, awkward sound. It was just, it was weird. And during all of it, he faked a seizure and he was taken out of the courtroom by ambulance. But of course, Elizabeth saw right through this. She, like, made eye contact with him, and it was kind of this moment of closure, like, you lose, I win. I'm living my life, and you can't take any more of it from me. On May 21st, 2010, Wanda Barzi was sentenced to 15 years in federal prison, and then another 1 to 15 years for the attempted kidnapping of Elizabeth's cousin, which is to be served consecutively. And then on May 15th, 2011... Brian David Mitchell was given a life sentence in federal prison, which means he has no chance of parole. One question that Elizabeth has gotten a lot is, why did she not run when she had the chance? Why didn't she speak up when she had the chance? And it all comes back down to the fact that she was just so full of fear. She felt like she couldn't be a part of her rescue in any way, or he would kill her family and it would be all her fault. And she wanted to protect them, so she wouldn't run. She just dealt with it. And another question that she gets asked a lot is, how on earth did you overcome this? She didn't do traditional therapy. She didn't really understand it as a teenager, what it was like. And she's like, you know, she believes in it, especially now as an adult. She thinks therapy is great, but at the time she didn't really understand it. And she thought, how, you know, how is some some guy at a desk going to understand how to help me what I've been through? But she found a lot of healing in horseback riding and playing the harp. It was very therapeutic. And also, she made the decision that she would pick up her life and carry on and make the best life that she could after what she'd been through. And to put it into perspective for herself, when she was 25 years old, she looked at the whole picture. She had been alive for 307 months. Nine of those months were terrible. But 298 of them had been very good. And she also believed in gratitude. She made a firm resolution that she would always be grateful and never feel sorry for herself. And during her nine months of hell, she learned that things could always be worse. She also believed in faith and that she has a heavenly father who will always care about her. And she feels like this is how she was able to forgive her captors. It doesn't excuse what they did. It doesn't mean that she wants to see them again. But in forgiving them, she's been able to drop that heavy load that she was carrying and move on with her life and never worry about what happens to Brian David Mitchell or Wanda Barzi. Elizabeth went on to marry Matthew Gilmore in 2012. They met on their mission in France and together they have two daughters and a son. She's now a nationally recognized advocate for children's rights She's president of the Elizabeth Smart Foundation, which advocates for changes related to child abduction and recovery programs and legislation. And she's also helped create a survivor's guide called You're Not Alone, The Journey from Abduction to Empowerment, which encourages and helps children know that there is life after tragic events. Mm -hmm.